is Hannah Reeve. I'm the founder of Nature Nurtures, where we help social entrepreneurs, passionate teachers and earliest practitioners to set up their own outdoor nurseries, forest schools and outdoor projects for children. Joining me today is Meryl Maselli, the founder of Forest Folk in Amherst, Massachusetts in the US. Meryl is an experienced early childhood educator. She's got 15 years of wonderful teaching experience in public schools and international schools around the world. After teaching in New York City, the Netherlands and China, Meryl and her family have moved back to the US. That was back in February 2020. And here, the beginnings of Forest Folk began. So Meryl, welcome. Thank you for sharing your story with us today. Oh, thank you. I'm so excited to be here with you today. So I'd like to hear... So you've got a huge background there in terms of international travel and teaching experience as well. So let's go right back to there and probably a huge question. What has that brought for you in terms of how Forest Folk is and, and what got you there? Yeah, you know, I was thinking a little bit about this today because I thought we might go backwards and, and start at the beginning. All of those experiences have impacted everything about Forest Folk. I would say that as an early years educator, all early years educators, I'm sure, can agree that once you stand in that role, it's not a role that really allows for neutrality. In so much of the world, there's this pushdown of academics and these content learning areas. And to be a great educator means we have to turn into an advocate for children. And so I think that's something that I saw across the board public schools or private schools and great schools and great leaders and great educators, but there, there's a push that comes from beyond the walls of the school in many cases for children, young children, to be doing things that really aren't appropriate for young children to be doing. So I would say the overarching seed of where Forest Folk came from was all of these years in these different contexts and these different schools and growing sort of a stauncher and stauncher advocate for what early childhood should be over the years. So I guess that's that's the first big thing. There's a few cultures there. Let's unpack that a little bit because you, obviously you've got the Netherlands in there and China and the US. Is that something that you were just talking about? Is that something that you saw in all of those places? Is this a global issue, do you think, or is it more focused in particular places? I think it is more focused in particular places. You know, my view is definitely a little bit of a fishbowl view because the international school world is, I worked in the American school of The Hague. So the, the context for the school is a very US-centric school. And, but I will say what was different in each culture and country that was very fascinating to me was the culture around childhood, the culture of parenting, the culture of play and outdoor play. That significantly varied depending on country. And I would say I was very much impacted by living in the Netherlands for six years. And I had my son while I lived in the Netherlands. And so we were there for the first three years of his life. And I'm very thankful for that because I got to experience what Dutch parenting looked like and felt like from an outside view. It's hard to be completely immersed when you're not completely immersed in a culture. But I would say taking my own son to the playgrounds throughout the Netherlands and different playgrounds around Europe was seeing the emphasis on natural play environments, on the upholding of independent play and risky play, and really not coddling children. The Dutch are, it's a very hardy way of parenting. And the Dutch children, I'm not sure if it's still the case, but were at once at least 
supposed to be the happiest children in the world by, by some metrics. So I think that very much impacted me. And during my time as a teacher in the Netherlands, I did for school the level three training through Bridgewater College in the UK. And so my time there definitely impacted me as a parent and as an educator and sort of sowed the seeds of outdoor learning and for school. Did it impact your parenting as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. You know, we took, it was such a lovely time because as a family, we were able to take little vacations throughout Europe to Germany and to the UK and Portugal. And I started to see and still believe to this day, you can understand so much around the culture of childhood and parenting in a country, just visiting a playground, just visiting a playground and seeing how parents interact, how children interact, what the play and structures and environment looks like. And so I became someone who really embraced a lot of the Dutch ways of parenting, which I think is cultivating this sense of independence and a freedom to be a child and to enjoy childhood and an appreciation for these. It's still the most beautiful playgrounds I've seen. And they were filled with natural features, often these beautiful wooden platform boats for children to just take themselves around a small river or stream, which that would be a litigation nightmare in the US and you would never see something like that. And water features, which are would also be something that you don't see typically in our sort of brightly colored plastic or metal kind of structures here. So yeah, I was very influenced. How fascinating. I saw that you've written about this as well, about observing children in play spaces. And how, I mean, you're an anthropologist, aren't you at heart? This is, you could undertake decades of study in this because that is fascinating and an insight into cultural play as well. How very interesting. (laughs) It is really interesting. And it was a gift that I've been able to see play in different play spaces around the world. Absolutely. Yeah, really interesting. You spent some time in the Netherlands. So let's go back to that Because that obviously was hugely inspirational for you. So Mm. how long were you there for? How long did you live there for? We lived in in Leiden for six years. And yeah, I think impacted us as a family tremendously and as educators tremendously. I say our because my husband is also an educator. (laughs) Ah, okay. So we have a family of educators. So what got you there? What got you to the Netherlands from the U.S.? Yeah, so I was teaching, I was a public school teacher in New York City, and I loved New York City, and I still do love New York City, and I loved my school that I was in. But my husband and I have always had a sense of, we call it itchy feet. We just have a sense of adventure and want to sort of get up and see the world. And somehow, as luck would have it, we landed in, I think, one of the most incredible countries in the world. I have such love for the country. The Netherlands gets so much right. And really the big reason we left was it's a country where if we stayed longer, you would just stay put forever. And life was supposed to be about adventure. So we had to pack our bags and say goodbye. And you packed your bags. And from there, did you come back to the US? No, after that, we went to Beijing and we went to the International School of Beijing, which is an incredible school. Nature is a little hard to come by in the school grounds, but it was it also helped me to really understand that we can take a moment right? If we're, if we're really nature lovers, we can take a moment when we find ourselves in those situations and be a little sad. Where am I in this urban environment? Where is the nature? But then if we really look, it's kind of incredible 
nature is everywhere. Nature is in the tiniest weeds growing through the crack of the sidewalk where you can find a colony of ants taking place right in front of your eyes and the enormous life you can find around one tree in the neighborhood. And so when I really looked, there were actually incredible learning opportunities there for nature and nature-based learning. And one of my favorite memories is turning a tiny courtyard into the, in the school, tiny courtyard and digging a mud hole and just asking the facilities managers to please not clean up this mud hole that is goes against sort of everything culturally. You wouldn't have like a mud hole in the middle of the courtyard and to leave that for an entire spring and children who had never gone out with shovels and buckets of water and dug and played in mud to get that to have that experience and such a joyful experience. And so learning outdoors and with nature looked very different there, but it was maybe even more rewarding in some ways because you had to seek it out and really find it and get creative. Yeah, sure. And for some of those children, first experience ever. Yeah. Well, with getting, I think, muddy and messy like that, I think for sure. (laughs) (laughs) So where does this interest, this passion for nature come from? I've thought about that because I didn't really grow up in a family that spent a tremendous time outdoors. In fact, for much of my childhood, I grew up in Florida, where it's so hot that you you spend Mm. a lot of time indoors. And I think what it comes down to, which is still the heart of our program, is we are education in nature. I'm not a nature educator first. I'm an early childhood educator first. And I think what outdoor play offers that has spoken to me is the essence of freedom that children need and joyful childhood and memory building that children need and the endless opportunity for inquiry that children thrive on and the empowering aspect of risky play and that outdoor learning offers. So I think that truly I came to this way of teaching and learning through the lens of being an advocate for play-based learning for children and defending early childhood as years that should be filled with joy. And that just happens to be in nature, I think. So you touched on this at the beginning a bit. Do you think that is becoming harder, that, that you're having to advocate harder for children in that sense, or do you think it's getting easier? It's interesting, the circles we build and then the voices and sort of the residents we hear back. So in some ways, right, this world is we're in one way surrounded by fellow nature-based educators, early educators who also believe very strongly in the rights of children and childhood. And then culturally, coming back to the U.S., I've been trying to piece that together. We're in a very liberal and progressive part of the world here in Western Massachusetts. So I do feel that even in public schools, it seems like there's a real understanding of the developmental need and right to play. But I'm not sure how that translates beyond this little world that we're in in Western Massachusetts. And then I think about the circles we build in our programs with our parents and our community. And we are usually hearing a response of, I agree. And one way that we, we do that, and I think this is also part of what, how I was very impacted in a good way through more traditional schooling models in public and private schools, is having a real sense of the power of documentation, learning stories, and writing as a way to advocate for children and this way of learning. So we share a lot. Our program uses Story Park. And 
we share quite a lot of documentation and group learning stories and individual learning stories. And it is for children, especially individual learning stories, but it's a way to advocate for this way of teaching and learning. And it's a way to bring parents on board to play-based learning, inquiry-based learning, place-based learning. And so we use that as a tool a lot to share philosophy in a way that makes sense for the community around us. With what we share with the world, and we try to share a lot as a program with the world in different ways, the response is always a really positive response, which is a great thing. But I do think we, in general, <laughs> over my history as a teacher, there's a, a push that goes that comes from beyond parent communities and beyond teachers who know what's best and, and beyond leaders who know what's best. There's a push that's hard to overcome and I think takes the, the advocacy from all of those stakeholders. Yeah, absolutely. And I think those things that you're describing as well, like in terms of bringing those families with you, because you're taking them on a journey essentially with the child, you know, you, the parent goes as well through this and understanding what is actually happening in your program and what the child is experiencing. I think that's very interesting. You're talking about Story Park as well. I really like Story Park. I've tried Story Park. I've tried so many of these online journal things, but mm -hmm. that one was very intuitive. It's good to hear somebody's using it in the US. Is it a US company? I think no, it it's Australian or New Zealand. Yeah, I think I it's Australian. Yeah. I think we tried it like five years ago or something. I guess I probably changed hugely since then. It's a, a relatively, yeah, like you said, intuitive, pretty streamlined way to share documentation. And I think would be many opinions on different sides around this. But I do believe strongly that when we share the richness and depth of learning through play, play is play. And we, we value it as play, as a developmental right and need of children. But with that said, we also, I, I take it pretty seriously that we need to, as part of defending the early years, we need to, to show the richness and depth of play-based learning and inquiry-based learning. And I think documentation is a professional tool that allows us to do that in a way that grown-ups who aren't early years educators can understand. Oh, Meryl, well said. I love it. <laughs> absolutely spot on. Yes, so much, so, so much. I think because a lot of parents as well, when they're coming into this journey, you know, with their firstborn or whatever, they're coming from that place of a little bit of anxiety and fear about, well, they're entrusting their most important person with people they don't actually know very well at this point. I don't know them at all. So we find that that process of documentation and sharing images and videos are very powerful and really help parents with regards to those things. They're heavily used here in the UK simply because they fit in with the early years foundation stage that we all follow. I haven't come across a lot of people in the US using these tools unless they're particular licensing needs. Yeah, I think, well, one, right, and I've been in that situation, all of the other schools I worked in, right, there were, it was, it was a necessity for standards-based reporting. And so when you're looking at it from that lens and Depending on what the standards are, which at times they can be inappropriate standards for young children, that's a whole other ballgame. And then in the U.S., you know, we're in a, a very interesting situation just because this way of teaching and learning is relatively new here. And so there's and it varies state by state. So, for instance, where I am in Massachusetts is a heavily regulated state. So 
We are not a licensed program. We operate with a waiver from our early education and care state department, which heavily constrains the hours that we can operate and the hours we can be with children, which is definitely unfortunate and a, a big hurdle in our journey because parents at the core need childcare and need time. But with that said, I think many of the programs in the U.S., depending on the state, are not fully licensed programs, operate with some sort of exemption, and then do not necessarily need to think about the documentation component. But I think thinking long range and long term, this component can actually be part of our advocacy to move forward. And so it's not only wonderful for a child to read their own learning story written to them, and it's empowering for, for parents to read about their child through the lens of an early educator. But these pieces and components can be saved as part of statewide self-advocacy for this new, for the U.S. type of teaching and learning. And is that specifically this outdoor forest school or school without walls? Is this a new phenomenon that the licenses are struggling with? Well, the light, I, th I think the big struggle is not having a building. That seems to be the biggest hurdle. And that varies state by state. But for instance, in the state I am in, it really comes down to not having a building and not having a permanent structure that can be inspected. Yep. So that's a challenge. <laughs> yes, it is. It blows their mind. So for us in the UK, very similar experience. Obviously, it's a devolved system. So you've got Scotland doing their thing, Wales doing their thing, and then England doing their thing. We're in England. And at the early years, foundation stage has just been updated. So it's about to launch a new version. And in that, they do now acknowledge that for those who operate mainly outdoors or who are outdoor settings, no longer are under the same restrictions in terms of the numbers of children. So for us, we have to have a dedicated square meterage per child indoor space. So the programs that are, because forest schools are, the, the ethos has been like alive and well for so long in the UK, but you've still needed to have an indoor space? Well, it, this is if you are licensed. So if you're Ofsted registered. So if you're registered with Ofsted, then you're going to need to follow the EYFS. And in the EYFS, it states the square meterage per child. But excitingly, this is shifting. There is this change. There's this clause in there that's changing for the outdoor settings. So if people in the UK, if you don't know about that, make sure you have a really good read of the updated version because it will make a huge difference. We have lots of forest schools that operate as forest school groups. So those might be unlicensed. They're mainly just stay and play parent-child groups. It has a huge impact. Yeah, and so interesting. Similar, actually. Yeah, and I'm a little surprised that, that it's not farther along because I feel like the philosophy is so rooted, more so culturally. For sure. And interesting, the, kind of, the parallels yes. across, across the ocean. Yes, isn't it? Oh, this is so interesting. We could talk about this for hours, just comparing. <laughs> Let's get back to your story. So you were in Beijing and then you landed back in the, in the US. Is this how you got there? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, while we were in Beijing, essentially COVID happened. So we left for the New Year holiday in January. Is that January 2020? And we didn't know that we would never be going back. But we we left with each one suitcase and we came back to the U.S. and we were a little nomadic for a while. And we knew we were going to, to come back to the U.S. and take a break from international teaching in large part because I just wanted to give this a try. I've been thinking about opening an outdoor program for so many years, writing about it in my journal, 
building up the bravery to do something. And it just felt like if we didn't do it now, we would never do it. And I'm very fortunate that I have a very supportive risk-taking partner who was open for a different kind of adventure, the adventure coming back to the U.S. and just trying this. We actually planned to head to the West Coast where, you know, forest schooling is just, it's much farther along. Washington state is now first and only state in the U.S. that does license fully outdoor preschools. When we returned, actually, Oregon and Washington were the two first states to sort of have outbreaks with COVID. And we just couldn't, we couldn't get there. And so we came to visit family in Amherst, Massachusetts, and we went on many, many hikes, and it's so beautiful here. And we said, well, why not just live here? <laughs> and so we did. We found a little apartment to rent, and I just started writing in my notebook every day about the dream and what I wanted it to look like and feel like and be like. And then things got pushed along a little quicker because soon everything that came along with COVID turned life upside down for all of us. My son no longer had a place to go to for a preschool. And as I think happens with every mom, you just go into mom mode. And my only goal then was trying to build something a little faster on the timeline to have a space for my child to learn and grow and thrive in a way that aligned with our philosophies as a, as a family and as an educator. And so that's really what happened. So a little bit crazy, <laughs> a little bit of yeah. a whirlwind. <laughs> so I imagine a bit stressful as well because of, goodness me, that journey from Beijing back and then that realization of we're not going to be able to go back must have been difficult. Yeah, it was a strange time. We were doing remote teaching, which right. was also strange hours. We were teaching at night, and but it also gave us the daylight hours to explore this area and spend time together as a family that we wouldn't have had. We were just up mm. a little bit later. And as so many people have done during this time, and I think human creativity and resilience has just been on display, is people are just resilient and just find a way to make things work for the people they love. And yep. that's really sort of how this unfolded. Well, you had that wonderful drive to have something for your son. I mean, if anything's going to happen, it's going to happen when a mother needs something for her child. So. <laughs> yeah, I think for anybody thinking about trying to open and start a program, there are lots of little hurdles. There are lots of hiccups and it's really easy to give up. In fact, I almost did a couple of times because this is a, a very regulation heavy world that we're in and it's tricky. I needed to remind myself sort of constantly what I was doing and why I was doing it, even if it meant rereading pages I'd written. I couldn't open the way I envisioned opening at first, and so I just started a little free nature-based playgroup in the forest near my house. And we were new to this area, and we didn't really have people or community. And so I just put the word out to the few people I did know, and slowly that grew to about five families and we did that for the first half of the year, meeting two mornings a week for a couple of hours. And it was really just so our children could safely play together with a little bit of form, nature play and some story and snack time all together. And then slowly, little pieces started to fall into place enough where after six months, we could open Forest Folk the way I sort of envisioned it would open. I think oftentimes with these sort of dreams, it takes patience, but also a little bit of understanding that it's not always going to look the way we envision it to look, at least not at first. 
And I still have to remind myself of that. Meryl, so true. <laughs> so true. And it's interesting as well, you talk about writing and even writing in your journal and you've basically documented your dream and your vision. And it's the realization of it's a long journey to get there. And that the degree of patience that is required is in itself an experience of learning how to be meditative about it. That's how it was for me, I would say. I was so, so impatient to get there. And I mean, several years later, we're getting closer. <laughs> but also, it's a wonderful journey full of highs and, and lows. And the surprises that you find along the way can be really, really valuable and can influence that vision to well, evolve in itself. Yeah. So, so you're saying, so you're saying you were doing these groups for the first half of 2020, weren't you? Mm -hmm. So, yes. so you have not been operating that long at all. No, we have not been <gasps> operating very long at all. And we have two classes that fully enrolled for the spring. And so that's 20 children and there's three other teachers, including myself. And we operate with a co-teaching model. So each teacher is in it to the same degree, contributing in all ways to planning and reflection and to documenting alongside each other. So it's been really wonderful. But now there's the new hurdle is things are reopening, right? That we're so thankful the world is vaccines are, are going out into the world. Preschools are going to be open again in the fall. And we still are in a little bit of a, a bind in that we don't have a building. And we can't be fully licensed. And that means we can see our children six days in a month, four hours per session. Six That's days in a month. That's how restrictive this is. Right. Yes. Okay. And four hours in a session. So right now with two classes, that means that we're always in the forest three days out of the week from 9 to 1 p.m. And that's a really feels like a really doable, nice model. But we have a wait list this spring. We have a wait list this summer. But with the world opening up. We, we don't have as many families for the fall. And so a little bit what you were just talking about around like the evolution of the process, that has the power and capacity if we're open to it, I think, to change us. So I'm still reaching out to everyone I can think of, trying to find building. But I'm also trying to take from this that there's ways, sometimes those hurdles are also helping us on the path. And so we've started to think about, well, what at our core maybe more than a forest school program. I am in forest folk, we are advocates for play and for childhood and for risky play. And so what does that look like? And for, for teaching others about risky play and what childhood should be and can look like. So in some ways, those hurdles, I think it's okay to be sad. I think it's also important to look for the ways sometimes for those hurdles could sort of lead us into a, a more expansive path. So that's something that we are just launching this summer our family and forest play days, which I think is part adventure playground, part forest space, part children's museum. I think children's museums are pretty popular, especially in my son and husband are at one right now in Vermont. They're pretty popular in the U.S. and they're very experiential and play based. And probably the best model I've ever seen was in Portland, the Portland Children's Museum, which actually is recently closed just due to funding. They are places where as an educator and as a parent, I go and I feel, oh, they get it. There's big hollow blocks for building often and all of these hands-on and often the outdoor play environment is also full of water and loose parts and it's very exploratory. And 
a lot of cities in the U.S. have or have been growing in sort of this trend of children's museums. And so as a way to sort of expand with our really the, the philosophy at the core is about being an advocate for play and sharing that with the world. This is something that wouldn't have happened that I certainly wouldn't have put on the plate had our if our classes were full for the fall. But I also don't think it's a bad thing. It might be what is a great thing to happen. That sounds very exciting and, well, a necessary shift ultimately, isn't it? Um, a necessary shift, but I also think about, yeah, I think about the UK a bit because it's a, a bit like you need to be a play worker, which is not a model we have here in the US, but that idea of an adventure playground and a play worker and how you're, right, when you're welcoming adults as well, it takes like a very synthesized approach to teaching what the experience is and isn't. And is really important for it being a successful, enjoyable experience for everybody. Yes, absolutely. I find it really, really hard. I don't know why, I just, I just find that element hard. Helen, my co-director, is fantastic at it because she can connect with people in a much better way than I can, I think. She's, it's just, it's a skill she has. Uh, it seems like it's a skill that you have as well because you're so open and you're so eloquent and very clear as well about what you are doing and what you're offering and where you're going with it as well. So I do have to try to tone down the revolutionary aspect of my play advocacy, which sometimes takes on a little bit of an intense tone, but <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> you have to meet people where they are ultimately, don't you? And then it's it's a journey together and seeing if 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 you can sort of you'll never bring them all the way to you, but you can at least find that space in between, can't you? I think that's a, such a great point because I think about it in terms of even teacher pro professional development. I don't know who said it, but somewhere along the way, someone said to me, well, it's a great workshop or it's a great whatever if you have one takeaway, one takeaway that you put into practice. And so if I think about that, if there's one thing, you know, a parent understands a little more that maybe we don't need to tell our child and explain everything to our child, but ask questions and theorize alongside our child, that's a big win, actually. But that's a powerful thing if we can do yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. And it adds to your skill base and experience. I think this is very exciting. I think it's going to be fantastic. So that's happening over the summer. Yeah. So hopefully that is something that you never know, right? When you put something out into the world, how it's going to be received. I hope it's received well. And if it is, I hope that's something that we can grow because I think it aligns. And you know, as we are sort of chugging along in different states in terms of licensure, there's going to be these roadblocks and it would be sad for somebody to just turn the other way and take the detour. And it might not look like the first iteration of the dream. Yeah, absolutely. And that's with any kind of project, organization or business that you're setting up, isn't it? You, absolutely. Everyone has this type of experience with having to move around with things and be, having to be responsive and reflective as well as much as possible along that journey. It's, it's challenging. It's exciting. And it will get better and better and better. It will. I think that is the exciting thing. You see this is taking hold around the world and it will, it will get easier and it will get better. And I think it's really exciting for people for the many people who have been doing this for a long time to be sharing and mentoring those of us who are just starting. And now I feel so grateful to be chugging along and to be able to share what we're learning. Yeah, keep going, keep going. So you, you arrived in Amherst. How did you go about finding a site? Oh, goodness. I think that 
That is such a hard part, isn't it? That journey was really difficult. And as somebody still looking for a building is very difficult. Essentially, the little play group that I, I started by running in the forest behind my house, I went making many calls to the town of Amherst and eventually got to sort of share the vision with the town's conservation commission. So we had a Zoom call, I shared what we were doing, and they gave clearance to use the land. And I was hopeful that maybe that would mean this is where forest folk could live. But the okay, the approval to use the land was contingent upon the public restroom in the park nearby to be open. And that public restroom is not opened for many times in the year, especially cold times of the year. And so I think these are the hurdles that we just have to keep not giving up when they present themselves to us because you can't open a program without that. So then I, I shifted and I reached out. I sent emails to the farms in our area that looked like farms that would potentially be interested. We have a lot of farms. This is a farming area, so there are many farms. And I think I wrote to three. And one person wrote me back who's interested in sort of creative projects and ideas, and he's been wonderful. We rent a forest, a woodland space from him. It's a wonderful space. It's an ideal outdoor learning environment. The only thing that's hard is that the specific kind of land that it is called APR land here is essentially land that can't be, no permanent structure can be built on this land. So that sort of forfeits any possibility of us to be licensed to stay on this land because without a building, we can't be licensed. Does it have to be a permanent building? Can you get away with having a temporary structure? No, you can't. So you need to have Massachusetts is very, I love this state. It's very, <laughs> it's a very progressive state. It's a very liberal state, but there's a lot of regulations and rules. So if we were in many other states, a, a state probably down south, it would be a lot easier, I'm sure. I'm also trying to change my perspective a little bit. Maybe that's what we need right now, because this is a space that I'm able to add to. I enjoy bringing materials like loose part items and planks and boards and pieces for children to explore in more of an adventure playground capacity. That's something that this space provides that a public space, a public park wouldn't, because you couldn't sort of set up shop permanently like that. And so maybe that's just part of the journey is how I try to think of it. Yeah. Finding a site is, it is challenging. And you have that added issue of hard planning rules it's a great resource i think oh, local, local farms yeah yeah we're, we're on a diversified farm or nurture outdoor kindergarten is based on a diversified farm and that's ended up with i mean it's still a huge industrialized farm the original farmer was a social entrepreneur and there are many many things on this farm it's an industrialized commercial it's got a farm shop and then it's got a number of social enterprises that run over in the other side of the farm shop and then there's also a business center so a sort of mini industrialized site or small businesses. And that's a fairly typical model for diversified farms in the UK. I think that's fair to say. But the thing with forest schools are that people are very clever at finding ways to make different sites work. I always advocate as well for doing a full-on look at the land itself and what it offers in terms of ecology. You must understand like typical directions of wind, where water flows, because that has a huge impact because you also don't want to destroy the land that, that you're on because having many people in there, even if it's a few sessions a month, has an impact, doesn't it? So there's so many things to think about. And then you've got this thing of, well, we need to have a permanent building in order for us to get to the next stage of our journey. 
I'm sure it will come as well. All of a sudden, something will unfold because as you're saying, you're talking to so many people and that actually is what gets people to the next step. I hit the story over and over again is I talked to so-and-so who talked to so-and-so who talked to so-and-so and and then they just knew someone who knew someone. You know, that's how it goes, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, for the most part, everybody, I think I've called, oh goodness, you know, we have we have several universities in our area. I've reached out to universities and, and different towns and people are very receptive. And honestly, when you just get down to it sometimes, I remember when I first, this is now quite a long time ago, probably over a year ago, when I first wrote those emails to the farms, it was a well-written, researched letter to the farms. And now I just call people. I just call people and I just say, hey, I have a funny thing I'd like to just throw out there because, you know, why not? And people are often very receptive. People often have no idea what this idea is. What is learning out fully outdoors in a forest with young children all about? And are really willing to sort of help and pass you along to the next person. I agree as well. I think when a building is, is supposed to arrive, if it's supposed to arrive, it'll arrive. But until then, just finding a way to make it work. Yeah. Oh, so arbitrary, isn't it, that, that you need this building, but actually, well, it's the weather this time of year. You don't need one. Just wonderful being outside. Yeah, absolutely. Very exciting that you, so you're sort of in a, an area of a lot of farming, so there'll be lots of wonderful pieces of land, I'm sure. It's just finding the right people with the right motivations. And it's making me think of Kristen, actually, of Nature Together, who we spoke with a few episodes back. And she ended up having a chat with the local seniors and that led, because you have to think the seniors, you know, they've been there for years and years and they'll know things that you certainly do not know. And, and that was her way in. That that's She also had to change tack in terms of the site she was looking at, didn't she? So yeah, that's yeah. a good one. You know, I think if anything, we are a resilient crew of people. And I, I, think I so, tried, yes. I don't know if you listen, are you familiar with Brene Brown? Oh, yes. I, yes. Did you, I recently listened to her podcast with um, Dr. Angela Duckworth on grit. And I've had it, you know, going through my mind like a mantra. Grit is passion and perseverance over time. It's passion and perseverance over time. And so we're not always going to have the passion, but we can have the perseverance in those moments. And we just keep chugging along. And that's when the success happens, when we just, we just keep on. And that's so true. It absolutely takes that grit. Yeah, it does. The Well, we're having to move site as well. We're documenting that journey because obviously that's quite a big one because we've been on the site where, where we're at for seven years and we've looked at many different things, but ultimately arrived at the view that we want to have bigger impact and that means connecting with other like-minded organisations. So we're being innovative with trying to find those people with shared synergy and to understand the vision and the values. And there are a number of ways to do that. We're restricted by the fact that we don't want to move too much geographically because we have a waiting list and I don't want to wipe out a waiting list by moving us to the other side of the county. And that's been our real restriction. But we've, we've found a site. We're just in the final stages of negotiations now. So then so it's been hard because we had one already. We, we, so we had another organisation that we signed up with and we were had a site laid out there, but then all of a sudden they decided actually no, because it was going to impact on their own growth. So that was that was a bit of a stunner, that one, and knocked us sideways a bit. So we had to get back up and use that grit. 
to move on to the next. And actually it's better. The place that we found is better, which is always the way. I think that is always the way. It's the space that you're meant to go to. Just be really clever with it because there are organizations out there who you could bring a lot of business to. You could bring revenue to anywhere. So for example, I always like to think about the fact that, so food, everybody needs food and food actually is heart of community. And then you add children to that makes, you've got the beginnings of a wonderful village. So if you build out from that and you can see how, well, okay, if it's going to be a family cafe or whatever, farm shop, you're bringing revenue to that site simply by having a group of children coming there with their parents. Because you'll have the parents who will hang around, have coffee, have breakfast, whatever. Um, Absolutely. I think that's it too, is painting the picture for, right? Because that's a different model for, for people to think about as well. And it's like painting the picture for that organization of what the benefits could be. Yep, exactly. Building in a whole new side to an enterprise, basically. It's, uh, it's bolting on an enterprise to something that already exists that they might not have thought about. But actually, you can do the legwork for that whilst doing your own thing. And it, it, it's very little input for them, which is what business owners want to hear, isn't it, really? Um, no, it's, so. a, it's such a great model. Actually, the one, you know, during, during the last year, it's been a difficult time to go visit schools, but one school, the Forest Gnomes pro Program in Natick, Massachusetts, is probably one of the oldest forest school programs in Massachusetts. And they are on an organic farm and it's, it's so beautiful as it's as you're, you're saying, you know, watching the children streaming in and also the people who are working on the farm. It's this one sort of coming together of this, this whole community and it makes perfect sense. And the program options too, if you really want to be connected are kind of endless possibilities. Oh, definitely. So keep plugging away at the farmers. You'll yeah. never, there'll be someone there who's <laughs> like, oh, I'm ready to diversify my farm. So go for it. So you've had to recruit people. How did you go about that? Because that's a big step and you've had to do that very quickly, haven't you? Or relatively quickly. Yeah, that was really interesting because actually we had somebody lined up to be a co-teacher with me. So I was going to teach in both classes with one other teacher. And then sort of close to a month out, that person couldn't stay on. And so it was really quick having to find the people and it I still can't believe the, the caliber of the educators who have joined the team. And you make a website and you put what you believe out there. And again, you, you don't really know how it's going to be received by the world. I have been contacted quite a few times by educators who are just curious to see what we're doing, if we need any help. But I think that speaks to early childhood educators and the, this, the, the staunch advocates for what early years is. And it speaks to people to hear the, their values espoused clearly, <laughs> you know? I haven't met an early childhood educator who doesn't believe these same things. We have three teachers now. So I started in both classrooms. As I mentioned, my son is home this year and it kind of quickly became, it was too much on the plate to be teaching in both classrooms, as well as the documenting component I mentioned, and then the admin component of trying to fill summer programs and things like yeah. that. Yeah. So I brought another teacher on and now I teach in one class and there's three other incredible teachers who are highly experienced and incredible to watch teach. But that's been one of the biggest gifts, I think, of, of all of this because you don't know. And coming back to the U.S., I wasn't sure who, yeah. who, I, would, who I would find to work with me. But I would also say that the co-teaching model has been a really successful model. So 
everybody is paid the same salary and everybody has the same input into ideas. I believe in a very inquiry-based model to leading and to working together, which maybe can be a little crazy if you're not used to that. I considered this spring an experiment. And so let's let's experiment together and feel like risk takers together and take risks together in what we're we're doing and what teaching looks like and then reflect on it together. It's been really wonderful working with such talented educators. I have felt so strongly about leadership in my past that I've just tried to be the leader that I've always wanted to be and to cultivate a democratic, transparent, trusting and respectful culture. Well, and if you're studying Brene Brown, then you're on the right track, really, aren't you? She is a must. And I especially love her new, um, right, they're only on Spotify, but the new The Dare to Lead podcasts now, which is all about leadership, have been incredible. Yeah, and I, I've got the books as well. They are so <laughs> good. So good. Right, Meryl, I think you're making this sound so super easy. And I think you're not giving enough justice to the fact, like you said, did you put out a website and then people contact, <laughs> you know, and they go, your website is fantastic. Meryl has got this wonderful page on there about the guiding principles for forest folk. And it is just beautiful. That's, Please, everyone, you. take a look because it's really, I can see how you are bringing people with you. And via the vehicle of, of the website and your social media as well, and using that cleverly, it, it, it makes such a big difference to be able to be clear about how you see early childhood, what children will experience through being able to come to your program. And I think that website does it so beautifully. Oh, we- that's really kind. Thank you. Well, it's true. That's why you've got people contacting you. I so appreciate the kind words. It took a long time. So it wasn't yeah. it wasn't easy. Yeah. I can say that. But I think you're right. I think in terms of the educators, and I think in large part, parents may not be so familiar with this, the ideas, but I think in large part, it appeals to educators because it's it resonates with their beliefs. And I had a lot of friends who offered to to look and read through it and offered really wonderful feedback. I love your thorough process. That's the way to do it. If you think about what you have done, it's absolutely monumental because you've done this on your own. There's no yeah. one else. This is you. No. So you've yeah. done this on your own. You've put together a whole huge vision and a business plan, essentially, because there's some money coming in here. So there needs to be some plans. Yeah. And then not only that, but you are new to that community. You have embedded yourself as an unknown in that yes. community <laughs> and you're having to bring people it's absolutely huge it and it's sounds no small crazy task. it sounds crazy when you say it it does feel crazy to, to be new to a place i will say um from the business perspective so yes the the dreaming and the putting it out into the world and the making yeah that i take credit for but something and i'm not sure if this is everywhere in the world and again we're in this like very progressive liberal little spot in the world they do free small business advising here. And Great. so I, I, I reached out to a um, organization in the community that I found through the you know, town of Amherst website. It was such an invaluable tool because I am a teacher. I am not a business person. And I had no idea how to do anything to register as an LLC to to anything, anything. Um, <laughs> yeah, okay. yeah. And so that person helped me every week, mentored me with and gave me my next little steps, the business steps. So I absolutely had did have help on that end. And I think 
it's such an incredible resource that I hope is available in every community, but I don't know it, that it is. I think there is free business support and I think it varies in terms of how useful it is. I think for ba the basics, you know, getting incorporated and so forth, it can be useful. We actually run over the summer, we're running an intensive startup course that has a lot of information that includes the business stuff. This is the thing as well. I don't think enough people talk about the numbers. I don't think people are transparent. It's just not something that's talked about actively. And I'd like that to change just to give people a bit more understanding of what lays ahead and what needs to be done, really. So, and it's important to keep, you know, you don't just write a business plan and that's done. It's a process that's reviewed constantly and frequently and keeping on top of accounts is really important and reviewing that. And I know that those don't sound like fun things, but they are really important and it actually helps you in terms of your own well-being because ultimately we need to make a living from this. So it's got to be done well and, and it's got to be done in the right way. So, and for a lot of people, it's just not feeling confident. So oh, yeah, we sure. cover a lot of that in our course. And that's so like, vital. It, it really yeah. is because, well, that's really the reason I needed to, to move to teaching one class because I didn't have a concept of how time consuming all of those things would be from, yeah. you know, if you're a teacher you are likely not familiar with, you know, QuickBooks and bookkeeping and accounting and all of these things. Like I wasn't and teaching yourself all of those things takes a lot of time. So that's really incredible that you have that course because that's a big part yeah. of the job. Yeah. Yeah. No, it is. It really, really is. We're putting more online stuff as well. We're just putting together a similar type of thing for online so that people can access it remote. We do so many things. It's trying to keep up with everything, but it is yeah. an area that yeah needs needs some attention. So yeah, we're, we're doing that, which is exciting. That um, is. No, it is. So in terms <laughs> of your numbers, are you profitable? I mean, this is so early days. No, we're not profitable yet. Yeah. <laughs> it, I didn't know what I was doing in terms of the business side, to be honest. You know, in speaking with the small business advisor, we looked at the numbers of other preschool programs sort of in the area, looked at the hourly rate and set our rate to be kind of like mid-high. When I rolled out enrollment, I didn't really know what to expect. And I probably did something I shouldn't have done as I made a, an early bird discount that was 15% off for the entire semester. Oh, and wow. That's I, a big discount. I figured I'd get a few people. And what happened is that the entire program is filled with... Uh, early birds. Early birds. So, <laughs> so that was a, a lesson <laughs> learned for that. But again, this is all sort of, I consider it, my mom calls these these um, moments tuition in the school of experience. And so, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> So tuition in the school of experience. And so, no, you know, if I'm going to be honest and what, what I try to remind myself is the motto that essentially it takes a couple of years to be softened and profitable. But it is something that's worrisome in terms of, you know, the hurdles that I think a lot of educators who are seeking to do something like this without being licensed. It really impacts our ability to be sustainable, to grow and to be accessible and affordable for families, but to also it's a hurdle to, to having families able to join, depending on how limited our hours are based on where you are. So there's a lot of reasons for everybody where licensure would support schools like ours, educators, but also children and families who would then be able to have subsidies and tax credits and such for, for programs. Yeah, yeah, exactly the same here. It does open things up so much. It's going to be finding the right site, isn't it, to enable that to happen for you? 
Yeah. I think for educational perspective, it really might be a better option to start as a nonprofit because it opens up, especially if there are hurdles to licensure for programs like ours, then it allows you more access to grant funding and to, to work with schools and other programs and organizations. So that's just my thinking currently along those lines, but, but we're looking into that and researching that now. Yeah. So that's, it's looking at every avenue, isn't it? That's, that's what you've got to do. It's an exciting place to be as well, because there are so many options here and it's finding the one that opens up the most doors for you right now. So it's exciting, exciting place to be full of opportunity. Yeah, it is. And I think, you know, it's just given that there's many programs and people are in similar sort of situations or trying to navigate different hurdles. It's really helpful to hear how people are navigating and how people are troubleshooting and being creative with sort of these different paths, because then it's just a little more for our own thinking and planning. Yeah, for sure. Is it something you would recommend for people to do to set up their own project for children in their communities after all these hurdles and things that you're going through? I absolutely do. Every day when I head to the woods, I'm so happy. It's such a joyful thing to wake up and be excited about your work and what you're doing and what you're putting forth in the world and the good that you're bringing to the children that are in mm. your care and in your part of the happiness research, right, is, is this idea of good work and meaningful work. Mm. And this is good and meaningful work. And even though I've, I'm sharing about the hurdles, I think the hurdles are an important part of that because I feel not like I'm being pushed down. I feel like very emboldened and, and stronger by it. How exciting is it to be in a place where you're sort of on the front lines trying to push a little bit and trying to pave a way for other programs and people? If you're not worried about that, if that sounds exciting, (laughs) then yeah, but I don't regret any bit of it. And I think it's nice to be challenged to think in creative new ways, right? It's sometimes it's really just all about perspective. Oh, what a wonderful place to end as well full of enthusiasm and passion and looking at the way forward. So thank you, Meryl, for sharing your story today. It's been absolutely fantastic to hear it. And I really, really look forward to hearing in a couple of years time how this has all unfolded for you. Exciting place to be, as I said, at this point, because there's a turning point that's coming up. So it's really exciting. So go forth, be emboldened and passionate and carry that through with you. Oh, thanks so much. This was such a wonderful conversation and chance to chat and learn from you and your program. So thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Meryl. 